Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. And hello, everyone. Happy Fourth of July weekend and happy opening night, opening day to Life on the Pit. We did something you see sometimes in the world of opera, but not very often in the world of musical theater. We did a three-act production. That is to say, three episodes released at once on this opening weekend. If you missed the previous episodes, check out episode one, which is just me telling you my theater story as well as what this podcast is about. And definitely check out episode two, my interview with the guitarist Alan Beck. Today's guest is James Brandt, whom I call Jim. There are percussionists and there are drummers, and not all of them are both, but Jim is both. Jim grew up north of, of Detroit, and he talks about getting into musical theater um, and uh, how that has led him to play for schools, community theater, regional professional theater, and also as a sub on uh, Broadway tours. Uh, just what Jim has to say about musical theater makes this the longest of the three episodes to date. And there's so much more to Jim's musical career that we don't even talk about. So let's keep this intro short and get to the meat of the episode. Here is my interview with Jim Brandt. And I'm very pleased today to have my guest here today, James Brandt. Uh, well, he goes by James. Do you prefer James or Jim? Well, Jim probably will work best. Uh, James is kind of when I'm in trouble. <laughs> That's very good. Um, so just to remind my listeners, because uh, we have no way of knowing the future, one, what the pandemic is going to be later on, and also when this episode comes out. So those two things just don't go together. We are recording this episode along with the first several episodes while we're under stay-at-home advisements. And so uh, just asking all of my guests, what are you doing during this time to stay busy? Yeah, well, it's um, I, I guess I didn't realize how long my to-do list had grown to. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm battling my way through that. And actually, it's it's, it's been kind of refreshing to uh, to get a few of those things off the list. But for the most part, uh, uh, you know, I, I have the the North Carolina School of Percussion that I run, which is a uh, well, the largest percussion school in North Carolina, and it's curriculum driven. So I'm doing a lot of work right now in you know 14 different tracks of you know 13 different levels of curriculum in, in every imaginable instrument you could come up with, and also working with a a uh, online learning or distance learning company that is accredited for high school credits in most states, including North Carolina here. So eventually the curriculum will be adjusted to their kind of box so that we can offer students at the school uh, high school arts credits for studying privately and studying percussion and, and ensembles and things. So that's taken a lot of the time. Uh, I, I do have a, a repair business as well, and I'm I'm down to, I usually am just swamped in that thing at this time of year, and I'm I'm now down to one marimba that I'll finish up in another week here or so, but because uh, I've been unable to pick up marimbas or deliver anything at uh, to the school, so I'm hoping that opens up in a 
a few weeks because I'm going to have to rent a truck and spend a, a week or so on the road. Great. Um, so you wear many hats, and we're probably going to talk about some of them later. But uh, I know you best as being a performer, uh, a percussionist, uh, also a drummer. And, and I just thought, probably start there with that distinction. When, when someone tells me they're a percussionist, I think back to in school when people joined the band or the orchestra and they got their little, looks like a briefcase, but it's a bell kit or a glockenspiel that they have to take home. It's like, you probably thought you were going to be playing drums, but no, you're going to, you're going to learn mallet instrument first. Uh, so I always kind of make that distinction. A percussionist can play a mallet instrument and a, and a drummer can sit down at a set. And I'll go ahead and say that I'm, I'm actually more on the percussionist side myself. I've, have, I've had experience playing in an orchestra, playing timpani, playing s- some marimba parts and so forth. And, and of course, you know, cliche for the percussionists is that they're, they're the ones that in an orchestra piece are counting 90 measures of rest, have a cymbal crash. <laughs> um, if, they get, if they get that far. But I could not sit down to, to play drums, uh, not, not for any gig anytime soon uh, with any kind of proficiency. And uh, I know plenty of people who are probably the other way around. They can play drums, but, uh, you know, you show them a treble clef staff and, or a bass clef staff and ask them to, you know, read some notes and also count rests. They're kind of out of their element. Uh, so you're, you're one of the people I know who do both. So uh, let's just talk about what, what's your difference between a percussionist and a drummer and the kind of training you need for either one? Well, there, as, as you've, as you've said, really, they're, they're very different. Um, the, uh, the drum set player will kind of take that first. The actual skill with the sticks is similar to a concert snare drummer uh, who may be playing multi-percussion things, etc. And it's also you know, similar even to marching percussion from time to time in 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 what we do. Uh, but the the big issue that's different is, of course, that you're playing with your feet. Uh, and that four limb coordination is is difficult to learn. There are lots of very fine percussionists that don't touch a drum set. When, when I was taking timpani lessons, I, I took with Sal Ravio in the Detroit Symphony. And that was in high school. And Sal, just phenomenal timpanist. I mean, one of the best in the country still. And he had a drum set set up in his studio. And he asked me, knew it, knowing I played drum set, to, to show him what to do. And it was amazing to me he couldn't do it. He couldn't do the simple things. Here's this master percussionist, just world-renowned, and was was unable to do very simple things in a drum set. And after about a month, the drum set disappeared from his studio. <laughs> you know, he just decided that this isn't worth it. So that's a skill. That, that coordination is a skill. Um, on the other side of the coin, of course, having to deal with pitches. You know, with drum set, we got different pitches, but we kind of look at them as we're just striking different things. The pitch happens. Right. Well, to, to then kind of go, okay, now I've got to learn some different techniques. Now I've got to learn... Uh, you know, chords and scales and patterns and things. Now I got to tune timpani. I got to actually tune to a pitch, not just something like sounds good on my drum set. So that's all. They're very different kinds of, of skill sets. So that there are there are very good drum set players who cannot play the other stuff. Now 
Could they if they studied? Yeah, probably. Um, and there are very fine percussionists who cannot play drum set. Could they if they really studied? Yeah, probably. But they have to make a decision somewhere. Uh, myself, I, I, I really focused on being a generalist from the get-go. Uh, and again, it was an, I, I remember sitting down with, with uh, another percussionist I studied with, Charlie Owen, who was a timpanist for Philadelphia for uh, you know, many, many years, 26 years, I think. Uh, but Charlie also played vibes, violin, drum set, congas, whatever, and, and he was the one who kind of, just before I went to college, said, you're going to need to make a choice if you're going to be a specialist or a generalist because you don't have time to do both. And I had keep your chops up. So I just basically, I enjoyed playing it all. So I said, eh, I'll be a generalist. So that's kind of where I ended up where, I, where I'm at. Uh, it occurs to me when I'm, when I'm hiring musicians uh, as a music director, if I go hire, for example, uh, a bassist, I kind of know that they probably have, you know, one or two instruments that they're going, going to play, and they'll probably play those well. And, you know, you could go like if, I, if I'm hiring somebody for, a, well, let's take it even more specific. If I'm hiring someone for a violin book, they're coming with one instrument. They might play it with a bow. They might do pizzicato and different things, but it's all one instrument. But if I'm hiring a percussionist, I really don't know, unless I've talked to them, how many instruments they play. <laughs> because I've, I've met some people, it's like they, they play all the drum parts, but then they'll say, ah, I, can't do, I can't do the glockenspiel part. Or uh, right. I don't have a vibraphone. <laughs> or I don't yeah. have a set of timpani. Or, you know, there's, there's always these things. Uh, have you ever counted how many instruments you do play? Uh, well, yeah, I actually did at one time in college. And it, it really, uh, at that point, when you start looking at all the little toys and, you know, we, we, we get everything thrown at us um, that doesn't fit anywhere else. Uh, at that point, uh, and I'm sure it's actually expanded from there, but we came with a list of, of well over 300 instruments. Wow. And folks don't realize that there's a technique to, you know, smashing two cymbals together. There, there's, there, there's a technique to playing a castanet part. Uh, often it's, you look at what's written, you understand what it is you're trying to do, but they don't have it exactly written correctly. So you have to, you know, to, to get it to sound the way you're, you understand they're trying to make it sound, then you have to make a few, few slight changes to it. Right. Um, I know in some kinds, kinds of music, the percussionist gets all kinds of non-traditional things. Like you've got basically the sledgehammer on a tree trunk in Mahler 6th. Uh, if you play George Antheil, you've got uh, like airplane propellers and sirens and things like that. Um, let, let's kind of drift that over into uh, into theater because you know when people hire you uh, to play for their show, well, most people who hire you don't have instruments for you to play, so you have to provide them. So I'm not I'm not going to like have you list your entire inventory of what you own. <laughs> But I'm assuming that there's some instruments you don't own, and what are some ways that you provide those instruments for a show? Well, the, at, at this point in my life, uh, the only thing I really don't own, you know, other than some very like a like like a water phone or something like that that I might use once and they're 500 bucks for a good one. Uh, at that point in time, if they really had to use a water phone, uh, I would have them rent one. Uh, there are percussion 
So it sounds like they're like there are backline companies for for rock bands and that all over the country. There are percussion uh, rental houses uh, that have all the weird stuff. You know, if you're if you're playing Gershwin and you need the the horns, they've got them. And you don't. So you know, I don't have those horns, but the orchestra would rent them. But the really, from a musical theater standpoint, the only thing I I've run into in years and years that I don't actually own are a set of timpani. And that's just because I've got nowhere to put them other than just store them somewhere. But at the since the North Carolina School of Percussion owns timpani. So, you know, I, I uh, from time to time, I'll say, all right, guys, you know, we're, 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 I'm, I'm going to grab the timpani for a while. And sometimes that's not possible. But I, I work with a number of high schools that also own timpani. And I can usually borrow it from them. And then one percussionist that I know in the area does own two timpani, which is what most shows call for. And, you know, she's really gracious with allowing me to, to, to use those when I can. And we kind of share instruments back and forth. Since we're on the topic of instruments, I just, again, kind of thinking back to the parallel example, if I if I hire a violinist, they'll... they'll they could show up two or three minutes before their call time, <laughs> open yeah. up their case, rosin their bow, sit down and play. Uh, walk us through what if if someone hires you for a show, and let's just say it's not drums. Well, just let's just say who knows what it is. You know, a big percussion book, drum book, um, going to call for a lot of instruments. And let's say that it's in an actual pit. Uh, let's say that the call time is seven o'clock. What is your procedure for loading in? Yeah, if it's a if, if it's a, a seven o'clock, you know, downbeat out of rehearsal, I, I'll, I'll share with you that this is this has always been a, a, a fun joke with me. I dated a girl who played piccolo all through college, <laughs> and I would be at every rehearsal we were both involved in. I'd be there an hour ahead of time setting up. She'd pop in about thirty seconds before the downbeat, sit in her chair, smack it together, and start playing. Uh, and of course she was she was long gone by the time i finished but generally what happens is that before you know when i get the book i'm at a real advantage if i know the pit but if i don't when i get a book when all the percussionists gets a book we'll talk about the percussion book right now you kind of you kind of have to look at what's there you have to get a general setup of what you're going to need. And then as you work through the book and you practice it, you realize that, wait a minute, the woodblock can't be that far away from the tambourine. I got to get them both. So you're, you're moving this setup around as you practice. And then inevitably, you load in and nothing's in the same place because it won't fit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so to answer your question, I, in most cases, I need an hour to get in the door. And I've got carts and stuff to get, you know, get to the pit, get unpacked, set up, and ready for a downbeat. And that often in, in there's some geographical differences in theaters and music directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I live, it's it's mostly smaller community theaters. That doesn't say they're not quality community theaters. Uh, but it's tough sometimes to get the doors open more than 30 minutes before the rehearsal. Right. And then you rush like crazy, but you're never ready for the downbeat. And that's always frustrating. I can drive 90 minutes and the, and the, the whole concept is very different. Uh, I usually tell folks that 90 minutes away, I'm in a 
small, large city. Where I live, I'm in lots of large, small cities. And the mentality is that of a small city. If I go to the large city, of course, I've got to drive 90 minutes, but, you know, the pay's better. You get paid cartage for bringing stuff in and out. Uh, you know, so it's different. Uh, so usually the first rehearsal uh, for me is getting in, getting it set, usually an hour. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of minimum. Uh, that gives me, you know, four minutes to breathe and get a, you know, get a drink of water before we start or a cup of coffee. And then uh, that first rehearsal, almost the entire rehearsal is now redesigning and shifting my stuff around. Or what people don't realize a lot is, you know, we, we, when we finish playing something, it's important where we put the mallets down. Because the next time we need them, we don't have time to hunt for them. So if I'm going to play a vibraphone part and the next time I'm coming over to the vibraphone, I've got a beat and a half to get there from the drum set or from the snare drum. Okay. Somewhere in that motion across, I've got to have those. If I put them over, over to the other side, I finish playing the snare drum and I start looking around for the vibraphone balance. Right. And so that, that whole, it's like a choreographed thing after a while. You got stuff hanging on your neck. You got, and so you, you, it's that setup, locking into the setup, and knowing where you've put all those mallets uh, is kind of what we go through as we, as we come in. So let's, uh, I feel like the, probably some of the listeners, uh, you know, they still don't have a clear picture of like what it's like if you're a percussionist in a show. So I'm just going to pick one specific example because I know that we work together on it. Let's take the book for Pippin. What, yeah. is, what, was, what kind of setup did you have for there? Like just describe the instruments. Sure. Well, this we, we did the revival version. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it, it's got a little different instrument setup. And that has, uh, if I remember, that's got two timpani. That's got... Uh, xylophone bells, xylophone vibraphone bells, uh, and then quite a few toys, different types of wood blocks, temple blocks, triangle, bongos, and, and a tambourine, all kind of all the kind of the toy box in there. So basically, uh, I have to set up in kind of a semicircle uh, if I can, so I can stand in the middle and kind of rotate around all those instruments. Now, as I set up, if I say, well, wait a minute, I've, I've got a xylophone lick that is, you know, goes right onto it to a suspended cymbal roll. If that xylophone's over on my left hand side, I can't have the suspended cymbal all the way on my right hand side. But if I got another timpani roll that goes that to a, now I got to have two suspended cymbals. Right. And to be able to play, you know, that many instruments, they get stacked. I mean, I, I think when we did that one, my uh, I, I had the xylophone up in the air and angled over the top of the vibes right so i'm kind of playing underneath the the xylophone or underneath the xylophone to play the vibes and then on top of the vibraphone i had to get my hands up in the air so you're you're in odd positions often because it's a semicircle, you end up where you can't see the director and that's always a frustration is that you know you've got an entrance to make but your back's to the director right you gotta i've used I've used mirrors. I've used, uh, you know, uh, I think in that one we even had a uh, a video set up. Right. Uh, worked with a little bit, and, and that was helpful. So, yeah, you've got this array of instruments, and you've got to get them to where you can move quickly between them, but still keep track of where the director is 
for that. And sometimes you have to keep track of stage cues as well. You may have a, a gunshot or you've got you know, something that has to go with what's going up on stage and you can't see the stage. So you get, you've got a monitor. So I watch the director, watch the monitor, swing around in circles, figure out where I put my mallets the last time. And it's, it's, it's almost a, you start, it's a sprint through the first act. Uh, and if you kind of get off kilter, it, it can be difficult to get back on again. Well, this is fascinating, and, I, and I've got some more questions I'm going to ask about, you know, just instrumental setups and also percussion books and so on. But I feel like at some point I need to backtrack, and let's just tell our listeners how you got into theater. So how old were you? What was your first show? Well, I, actually, I was really lucky. Um, I, uh, my first show was uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And I played the percussion part in the orchestra. We had a school system. Uh, the high school was probably 4,000 kids. Hmm. And one of the things that the community did every year was a community musical. And that, I mean, it was not just the kids at the high school. It wasn't the high school musical. Uh, orchestra players came from the high school. They came from professional in the community. Uh, Bob Pangborn from the Detroit Symphony was a was a percussionist, and he would play in it when he could. Uh, you know, he had the chief of police was one of the leads. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, if, if you can imagine that, you re- it really was this community event where uh, it, it was a fantastic experience, both for the players uh, and, and the actors and, and the performers, uh, as well as the community itself, because you just you met all these people outside who you knew them as. Uh, and it really it helped. It was kind of a tight knit community at that point. So that's where I got my start. I played in the orchestra the, the first year. Second year, I, I believe we did Guys and Dolls, and I moved over to the drum set book mm-hmm. uh, for that one because the drummer who had played was a senior in high school and he graduated, and I had moved into his spot in the big band and that, and so moved over to the drum set book. And I'm trying to think, we, we, we did Guys and Dolls which is a fun drum set book, probably a great first one to do. Right. Uh, it's not real taxing, but it's fun to play. Uh, and I, you know, I'm blanking right now at the other one. I know we did it. Well, one of them was Oklahoma junior, senior year. Uh, you know, it was, all the, it was all the kind of older kind of stuff. Cause, well, hey, you know, I'm old. Right. <laughs> now we're talking high school, right? So, this is high school, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so did that carry over into college? Did you do shows when you were there? When I got to college, you know, I... I had this experience doing these shows that many of the folks I was at college with did not. Mm-hmm. And so opportunities arose for me to, to outside the, the, the college itself to play for community theaters. Um, I, I played, boy, I think three out of four years and just constantly for a little dinner theater in uh, like in Okemos, Michigan. I went to Michigan State. And my, my favorite memories from that is that the theater was so small. You know, it's a thing where they feed you dinner and they clear all the plates and everything and they kind of set the stage up. And there's a, they're not really eating at the same time. There's, there's, a, uh, there's a musical put on. Well, the theater was so small that I had to play in the kitchen with the door open to where I could see the director who was out in the main room right. <laughs> in front of the stage. And that was that was my, you know, constantly. I did a lot of shows where I played in the kitchen. Nice. <laughs> so, you know, those kind of things happen. But, yeah, it, it kind of carried over. Uh, 
when I I got out and, and, and started actually as a studio musician in Chicago when I graduated, the, the theater stuff kind of came to a halt for a while because it was just not you know, I think two things. One, I wasn't known in Chicago uh, in those circles. I didn't do a lot of work to get into them because I was really focused on the recording side of things. And that's where all my time was. Right. Uh, I eventually rotated back down into it as, as I, uh, you know, moved around the country and, and uh, got back into things. And, and, and I, I'm glad I did. You know, it, I've got a lot of students that, that uh, still play off Broadway and the tours and that. It allows me to, you know, go in for a weekend on a tour and spell them and get to play some of the newer stuff with some really fine musicians. Right. Uh, and as well as do, you know, community theater stuff. And, and, and again, community theater around around me is is you know smaller theaters you know solid talent smaller theaters which is its own kind of confusion for for percussionists and drummers right uh, and then you know, I, I can drive 90 miles to a larger city and it's much larger theaters uh you know again good musicians but now i'm expected to play the whole book right now, now I'm expected that, you know, well, even with the drum set books, if, you know, locally, eh, if it's a rock tune and I can kind of come out with a rock beat, cool. On the other side, you know, when I, where I you know, go 90 minutes away, you know, their expectation is the ink gets played. Right. And play that drum part as it is. And, and there, are, there are some really good musical theater drummers. That, that not only really don't do the percussion, but there are some really good ones that don't really read at the point where they can read a drum set part, which is it's kind of its own animal. You know, as a pianist, you know, I'm, I'm used to most of the time, like in a classical setting, everything is written out. But occasionally, if the composer's more jazz-minded, I'm going to see the slashes with chord symbols and, you know, and it may tell me something, you know... Uh, mambo style or yeah. you know or dave brubeck or some they'll give me some kind of a clue uh i would i would think that percussionists have uh, and drummers especially have a lot more of that so it seems to me percussion probably a little more written out and drummers sometimes I've... yeah i i think that's exactly accurate the the, the percussion books are significantly more notated and the, the idea is to play the ink. The only time we get the, you know, kind of four slashes in the bar with an indication of something is generally if we're on hand drums, you know, congas, djembes, that, you know, bongos, etc. And they may give you some, you know, you may have a bongo part that may have slashes and it may say, you know, funky matillo or something. Well, I guess you right. some it's a lot like what you see in the studios. Uh, now for the drum set parts, there's been an evolution. The older stuff, the the Rogers and Hammerstein and, and all that kind of thing, man, you got nothing. <laughs> you, right. you had chord progression. You got an entire page of a C for common time and four slashes in every measure. Right. Now you had rehearsal letters. You had had double bars. You had repeats. But as far as parts, you got nothing. Mm -hmm. So in those cases. It was really important for the drummer. On the one hand, he didn't have to read drum music, or she didn't. But it was really important that you understood styles and, and understood you could hear something and go, that's this. And especially when you had shows that were the music itself was not so much Robert Russell Bennett orchestrated stuff. It was more 
popular music of the era and knowing what drummers did with popular music of that era because you didn't have anything on the page. And, and so, you know, we have to know things in that scenario, like the hi-hat right. didn't really come into play until the early 30s. And you didn't really get it in popular music much until the mid to late 30s, even in the early 40s. Did not use hi-hat with played with it on with sticks. Right. So, you know, I had a couple of years ago, I played back to back Annie mm-hmm. and anything goes. OK, and, and historically, they're set about two years apart, you know, in, in, in the 40s. Right. And the music is still kind of that slash notation, some quarter notes, you know, a million bars of quarter notes, which is not what they want you to play. But you had to realize that, you know, playing a hi-hat through that whole show, either one of them, was not appropriate. You know, people were still riding, if you will, on, on the snare drum. And so it was, you had to know how to play a cakewalk. You had to know how to play a beguine and, and understand, you know, by listening to the music, what that was and play that. Now, of course, Annie, <laughs> you have an entire show like that, and then the big hit from it is a is a 70s rock ballad for tomorrow. Right. <laughs> so, who knows? You know? But they had, they had to have a hit. So that had its own, and, and still when you get those books, it has its own information you need to put in yourself. But now as we've moved forward, most of the, the newer musicals, uh, you know, really from kind of Rent and Shrek and Mamma Mia and, and all that kind of stuff in through uh, Aida, and that is all scored drum set music. So it, it tells you the groove they want. It tells you the fills they want. And the ex- that's where the expectation in one area of where I play is, ah, get close, play a Latin beat. Right. Where the other place, you know, if if I leave a kick drum out at the end of something, you know, the music director is going to, hey, hey, wait, isn't there a kick drum on the end of four there with the bass? Right. So it, it's a it's a very different deal, and it takes a different skill. You've kind of got that percussion gig, and then you've got the drum set gig, which in itself is is evolving. And now, so many of the drum set books have the electronics in them. Right. It, it's it's you've got to get the patches. You've got to load up your your Roland or your Yamaha or whatever, and right in the groove. Mm. You've got to trigger stuff. Uh, Aida was that way. It was a difficult book to play, not so much just in the drum set, but you had. All these triggers that had, you had probably 30 or 40 different triggers that had to be, you had to keep, you know, while you're playing, you're resetting your, because you've used the 12 you had on that setting. And so you're playing with one hand, resetting that trigger so you can get to the 13th and 14th one for that tune. Is Aida so, the most difficult book you've ever had to prepare, or do you, does that go to another uh, honor? <laughs> yeah, I, I think Aida was difficult because it took time because I had to load all the samples in addition to the drum set work. And you had to play the samples within the drumming. Mm-hmm. It was part of the groove. It was another surface you had to deal with. Uh, you know, probably one of the harder books, believe it or not, to play as a drummer and actually play the page, play the ink, is something like Bat Boy. Mm. Uh, you know, it's odd meter rock stuff that a lot of it flies. Good old Lawrence Keefe. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then you get in, you know, I mentioned the size of the theater. Well, you get in something in the theater where it's a small theater, and you're trying to play at that speed around the set at a volume level 
that, that, that's very light, that's very difficult to do. You know, because the faster you move that stick from, from thing to thing, the more, more force it has when it hits. Right. So you really have to be careful uh, to do that in that situation. So that, that, that one, for me, was, was one of the harder ones to put together and really be able to drive that ensemble uh, confidently right. as I played and not just kind of get through some tunes. Uh, besides all the stuff that's, that you're expected to do on the page, and including interpreting what's not on the page, uh, I know from experience that sometimes percussionists are asked to do things that aren't in the book at all, like watch the action and do a slide whistle, or what are some things that you've had to do off completely off the book? Well, and that's that's typical. I mean, you, you have, you know, ship's bells, you got slide whistles, uh, pop guns, um it's those are all kind of part of it, you know. For years uh, before the electronics, we did, uh, you know, gunshots were rim shots, and so and and some of that's some timing thing with the the folks, and you have to work with them where you have to say, look, you know, I need some indication that you're about to pull that trigger because I can't see your finger, and I can't just oh there it is. Okay, because I'm going to be late. So I need you to make, you know, we work out some slight physical motion they make. Maybe they just tip the gun up, you know, maybe three degrees and it goes up, down. And on the down, they're going to fire it. And so that, that's what I watch for. You know, you've got fights where you've got to, when somebody hits someone, you've got a slapstick or you've got, you know, all those kinds of things. You know, the Wizard of Oz where the, the Tin Man's getting oiled up and you've got to, got the ratchet to go. And you've got to, you know, uh, when it's stomp, when you stomp on the floor, and you've got a, you know, you've got literally a, a, a five-gallon metal bucket with a, you know, symbol stack on top of it to get that effect. So you got a lot of that stuff. Uh, like one of the early ones, uh, when Miss Saigon first came out and, and the helicopter you know, right. sound comes in. And we now, you know, we record a helicopter and everybody goes, ooh, well, when, when that thing was first there, we didn't have ways to, to play helicopters in quite that well. And that was actually done uh, with a 28-inch bass drum head uh. that was mounted on nothing. <laughs> and someone held it, and I simply went bump, 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 bump with, with, with bass drum mallets on it. <laughs> and that was the helicopter blade coming in and out you know, we do a lot of, of kind of sound effect things uh, what's one horror story that you can share with us from all your years of experience well i, I it, it's actually happened twice now i guess the, the, the worst one was on on tour I, I was filling in for one of my students uh this was only a couple of years ago uh playing wicked on yeah. tour now that's a large orchestra it's it's a it's a you know flat out got a rock and drum book. Right. In many theaters, as you're aware, uh, the pit is nowhere near the theater. Mm-hmm. The, they're, they're, the, the, the musicians are in another room in the basement, or in some cases they're across the street. Right. And the music's being piped in. So in this particular instance, I, I was playing a drum set part, and, and the tour toured with a plexiglass room. That was in no matter where it was. I happened to be in the basement, and I had one monitor, video monitor, for the conductor and one for the stage. Uh, I was in my plexiglass room, and nobody else was there. They were all up in the pit. The percussionist was down the hall in his own little room. So uh, 
as luck might have it, throughout that show, we had video connection problems. You, you, when the video goes the way that was set up, the audio goes as well. Oh, no. So you're playing, and all of a sudden, everything goes blank. You're in the middle of a tune, and everything goes blank. The director doesn't know everything just went blank. <laughs> that would be easy. He right. would just say, okay, well, i got to follow the drummer, and we'll just make it all play together. Well, nah. Uh, <laughs> the director thinks you've got everything you've always got, and he can't quite figure out why you're not doing the things that he's telling you to do. Right. <laughs> okay. So that that was an entire show, uh, second act, mm. of, of that kind of stuff going on between the percussionist, myself, and we actually ended up, just so we were together, uh, we actually, during a, a, a break in the action, we opened the doors because we were on the same hallway mm. so that we could actually hear each other. And so, hey, we played a wonderful show. I have no idea what the audience heard. Right. (laughs) And the music director did come down afterwards and say, hey, and I said, hey, we had no video and no audio. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) good job. (laughs) Nice. So that that was the worst scenario I've ever found myself in, but you can't just stop playing. That's true. What's a fond memory, one of the fondest you've had of a a show? This is going to sound really silly because it's – it's it, it's little kids. Right. Uh, was playing a children's concert, actually, doing, I believe it was Cinderella. And by the time you got into the second act, they, they kind of knew the story, but eh, they, they were a little fidgety. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really weren't paying a whole lot of it. At least I didn't see it. I was in the pit. You can kind of see them. <laughs> um, but all of a sudden, we, we weren't playing. The prince made some gesture to the back of the hall <laughs> and said something about, I don't know exactly the line, but something about, you know, there are my horses coming now. Got a, you know, 500 kids in there. Every little kid shot up in their chair, spun around, and looked at the back for the horses. <laughs> you, you, you could, you, all you could see were little butts everywhere. And then they turned back around. They were so confused that there were no horses there. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, but that was, it, it, it's, half of them were asleep by that <laughs> time. They were doing it, but man, as soon as he said there's horses, bam. <laughs> they wow. were up and around. But I guess they had the other, the same show, they had introduced the music director. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're used to having an introduction to a music director, and we either applaud or whatever. Well, they didn't know what to do. Nobody told them. So they introduced the music director. The music director, this is before the show, the music director turns around and just kind of waves at him. So what do they do? 500 little kids all wave back and go, hi. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, that's what anyone would do if someone waved at you. Right. <laughs> so, it was just, so, you know, those two things with, with how kids reacted that weren't told what the, what the rules were uh, are, are, all, are some of my fondest memories of just watching them enjoy themselves. Nice. I feel like you've sort of touched on this already with just kind of your own experience learning shows as a student, but what advice would you give, like, you know, high school, college music students who think they might like to do this as as a career someday? Well, uh, I I would, you know, as a career, certainly, uh, they've, they're probably their best bet 
is to study with someone who's doing it or has done it. Right. And because there's there really there is a book out, uh, but it it's kind of older stuff and it really doesn't it kind of explains some of the things that you have to do. Uh, and then the other thing that that'll do is allow you to get into the pits mm-hmm. and just see what's going on and watch. You know, like I, I bring a lot of my students personally into the pits with me that that have an idea I'd like to do this, and they just sit and watch, uh, and they come back and go. I never, I never knew that was what was going on. I think the other is it's going to be important for those individuals, even if it's not exactly what they want to do, uh, at least for, for percussionists, get in an organization and school bands and orchestras are the best places to do it, where you have to play something other than a drum set, you have to read music, and you have to be able to follow a conductor. Mm-hmm. Because... That experience in itself, there's a lot of drum set students I have that have never had a conductor in their life. And this idea of I have to change when the conductor changes and he has to, he or she has to change depending on what's going on on stage and kind of mesh everything together. I just can't play the tune. That's a real awakening for a lot of drum set players in their first couple theater gigs. They, they, They don't understand this follow a conductor thing right they kind of want a go and then i'll play to the end and stop but you know, especially the ones where the older ones where you stop and there's dialogue and there's six beats and there's some more dialogue and two more that's like what are we doing <laughs> I, would, yeah, I have no idea where i am anymore so getting experience in the theater is good but you know learning to read that that's that's critical to this uh even just drum set players in this day and age um more and more they're going to have to 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 read the drum set parts. Right. There's going to come a time when eh, maybe it's here now where 80, 90 percent of the, the drum set stuff being mounted. Uh, certainly as a career, you're going to have to do that. Right. So it's music study and, and studying with someone who does it. So you're in the pit in ensembles where you're following a conductor and in ensembles where you kind of have to force yourself to play other instruments beside the one you really like to play. And, you know, realize that, you know, attitude change, you know, bells aren't just for girls. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this has been a great interview. Uh, you've you've shared a percussionist's job in a theater is just it's so complicated. I feel like we could keep on talking about this. Uh, the last question I'll ask you is uh, when when theaters open their doors next, do you have a show already lined up? Well, there, there's a you know, there are a couple in in the back half of the year um i usually stay pretty busy i'll do eh, 20 21 shows a a year wow uh now obviously a a number of those are short runs um but at this point you know i'm I'm usually booked out about four months that's when my schedule starts to even up well we've kind of gone through that four month period We're, we're heading into where that four-month period is kind of expiring. Uh, there are a couple on the books that are on hold. I don't think they're going to get done. I don't see musical theaters being reopened here in the next month or two. Right. Uh, effectively. So I kind of figure those aren't going to happen. And the ones that, you know, they usually book, you know, three, four months out, well, 
those that would be booking now, nah, they're, they're not booking because they don't, you know, they've either canceled the show or they're trying to figure out how to push it down line or, you know, everybody's kind of on hold. Now, right. once it kind of opens up, however that looks and whatever that is, yeah, there's going to be fun because there's going to be theaters all trying to get the same musicians at the same time. Right. And it's going to be tough, you know, try and fill that up. Uh, so, yeah, some of the some of the larger theaters do have me book later on in the year because uh, that's just how they operate because they don't want to go through that. And they right. said, ah, we'll keep you booked. Uh, we're going to still on the target until we say it isn't. So, yeah, I don't I don't have a lot right now. Well, it shows you how things are changing. Uh, when I was when I did the episode before this, the show I had that was supposed to be in May was scheduled for October. Well, now they said, now we're going to do it next April, <laughs> 2021. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's probably, that's probably a safe bet. Right. You know, well, they said, they're, because they're if something, if society starts to shut down again, well, well, basically theaters are, they're kind of on the last to open first to close. So yep. uh, it's, it's very difficult this time just to take risks. I was going to say, even the community theaters, if they can get open, you know, the seating's not going to be much. Right. And they function on a, on a, on a small budget and they got to fill the seats or else it doesn't work. So it's like, okay, you can open, but you can only seat at 50% capacity or something. Uh, I don't see them mounting these things either because it's, it just, I can open, but I can open and lose money. Right. So it's, you know, it, it's tough. You know, especially uh, what's been hit hard and, and some closings are, are music venues that are not full-time venues. They put on concerts every two weeks, every three weeks. For, so they have part-time employees, so they can't get in on that program. You know, they're, and they can't open up, but they still got rent. You know, so it's, it's, that's probably the toughest little corner of the world uh, for us right now. Uh, is 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 really hope that there's something, you know, going on that because there's been a lot of them lately that just have shut the doors. Right now, quite possible that they shut the doors to stop the bleeding, and they may reopen the doors either there or somewhere else when things come back. But right. as, at least right now, you know, there's a there's a lot of a lot of tour stops that no longer exist. Right. Well, Jim, I know that you're. Uh... You're busy. In fact, you, you you have a lot of musical hats that you wear besides theater that we just we didn't have time to even talk about in this episode. And maybe we <laughs> might come back to that at, at some point. Uh, but thank sure. you for taking the time to for this interview and for just all that information and uh, best wishes. Absolutely, David. I appreciate talking with you. And you uh, you guys stay safe and uh, we'll we'll be in touch. One of Jim's musical hats that I referenced was the fact that he's had an extensive career as an arranger with experiences working for Disney, and he's often in high demand by marching bands and concert bands. And if this podcast were more of a general music podcast, then we could have had another 40 minutes or so just on that topic alone. At any rate, I thank Jim Brandt for being a guest. And that concludes the first three episodes of Life in the Pit. Going forward, look for one new episode each Friday, starting next week. And please, I can't stress enough how much it means for you to, one, 
offer a five-star review on Apple's podcast page. Two, subscribe to this podcast wherever you receive podcasts so that you're the first to know about the next episodes. And three, share, share, share. These three things should take no more than a few minutes, and it really is a three-step recipe to deciding whether or not this podcast is a hit and can stand out in the genre of musical theater and eventually do some interesting things, or go the way of anonymous podcasts into obscurity like so many others. If you enjoy this topic and you want to hear what so many others, not just my friends, but professionals all over the world, what they have to say on this topic, please rate and review, please subscribe, and please share. And as always, a special thanks to Mark Carollo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. All original music is composed and performed by David Lane. For the time being, you can find out more about this podcast at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast or at our Podbean page. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and share with your friends. Yes, I said that again. Thank you for listening. Thank you.